Okay, we're going to start out by saying the fog light prayer. Um, if you don't know it, just follow along. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Brandon to come up and read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the trail steps is to have one, so it is kind of important to know what one is. Brandon? Brandon, alcoholic. The term spiritual experience, uh, experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unexpected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power that's greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane or meeting mode, or just turn it off. 
Um, so tonight, and the reason you're all here, is we have Tom back for his 10th session now. Um, it may not feel this way to him, but it feels like the time has flown by through these sessions. Um, for those that have been coming each week to hear Tom speak, you know, this series, he's really been on fire, and I've been getting a lot out of it, and I look forward to hearing what he says has to say tonight. So. Every time I'm an alcoholic, and uh, this guy, he uh, he went to the judge. You know, he says, uh, "Your Honor," he says, uh, "I got to have a divorce. I just can't, just can't stand it anymore." You know, uh, my wife, she's she's driving me crazy. And the judge said, "Well, well, what's the problem?" And the guy says, well, she, she goes to bars after bars every night, bar after bar. And she's in these bars every night until after midnight. And uh, the judge says, well, what's she doing? And he said, well, she's looking for me. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good, too. You know? Right? <clears throat> so anyway. Let's get right down to it. Uh, on page page 85 of the big book, 84 and 85, and the 10-step the promises, which I, I love the 10-step promises. You know, I, I'm not going to read all the 10-step promises to you, but... Uh, uh, if you caught Peter the other night, Peter's not here tonight, but if you caught him at the at the women's club, he went through the promises and did a, he did a fabulous job, you know, going through the promises on the tenth step. We've been kinda I've been kind of following along Peter, you know, in, in the same step. But I'll start here where he stopped. It's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower. One of my favorite lines in this book. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. And I have, uh, I have, I have certain pet peeves in AA that I've developed over the years. One of those is with, uh, and by now, you know, we're at the 10th step now. You should understand by now, through the application of the first nine steps, what living a spiritual life is all about. You know, you should, you should be living that spiritual life. And you should understand uh, what I hear a lot of times, and not just from the mouths of newcomers, 
but I hear, I don't know what God's will is for me. And I think, how can you be so arrogant? How can you be so arrogant as to think that God has some special will just for you? Out of all the billions of souls that there are, that God has some special will just for you, just for you in mind, you know. But I know, uh, and I hope that you know, at least by now, what God's will is for you. I mean, after all, it is written in the book, but it's written in a chapter that doesn't get read very much, the family afterward. On page 133, we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. We cannot subscribe to the belief that this life is a veil of tears, though it was once just that for many of us. But it is clear that we made our own misery. God didn't do it. Avoid, then, the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. God has the same will for me as he does for you, as he does for all of us, because my God loves me unconditionally. He loves me, and he only wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. I got rid of uh, that old God. I had to get rid of him. I could have found no spiritual life in Alcoholics Anonymous whatsoever if I had not gotten rid of that old punishing God that I came here with. That God that was a monster that wanted to condemn me to hell. You know, that wanted me there for eternity in the fire pit, suffering. Well, who wants a God like that? What if I were to say to you that the biggest cause of atheism is Christianity? That's kind of a striking statement, isn't it? You know, you don't have atheism in Hindu countries and Buddhist countries. Oh, but you got a whole lot of atheism in Christian countries because of this desire by man to oppress and put us under their thumb and control us. I understand that. I was born and raised Irish Catholic and spent my whole life, as you've heard me say in prior meetings, I've spent my whole life in that. But there is no power other than the power of good even evil comes from good. Good's the only power there is, or there could be no evil. Or sometimes maybe we forget that this story about this Satan was a fallen angel. He was once good, wasn't he? 
And I couldn't be good at being good. What I couldn't be is I couldn't be perfect because I've got this myth of perfectionism. And I've got this alcoholism that tells me that, that I have to be the best, that I have to be right, that you have to be wrong. You know, that's why I argued with so many people in Alcoholics Anonymous for years, all the years that I spent around here, trying to figure out how I could be the one who was right about this, and they're the wrong ones. Because that's what all that was important to me. All that was important to me was that I be right and you be wrong. The people in Alcoholics Anonymous, the loving people in Alcoholics Anonymous would put their arm around me or, and they'd say, it's okay, Tom, you got a right to be wrong. That used to infuriate me. Just infuriated me. I couldn't stand it. How could they say that I had a, a right to be wrong? I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand that because part of the disease of my alcoholism is egotism. I'm full of ego. And the reason I'm full of ego is because I'm full of self-condemnation. And I had to create all this false pride to make up for it. And that's where the fall of man comes too. The fall of man comes in pride. So this angel who wanted to be God, see, he wanted to be God. He fell from grace. And this man who wanted to be God, he fell from grace too. And turned his back on God. Because this God, he wasn't, he wasn't right. Do you know how many years I spent in Alcoholics Anonymous sitting in here and coming here because I was in a jackpot and that was the only reason I was coming to Alcoholics Anonymous was because I was in a jackpot and sitting around here and judging everybody in these rooms and condemning everything that I heard out of people's mouths because they were full of it. That, that's not the truth. The truth is, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy who's been jacked around. That's what I built up in my head. And I had a, I had a justification. So where was my problem? My problem was really in justification and rationalization. I soothed my conscience. And minimize my guilt. And now you're going to say, oh, well, maybe you see a therapist or something that tells you about guilt. Like there's something wrong with guilt. If there was something wrong with guilt, we wouldn't have it. There is something wrong with shame. Shame says I'm bad. But I'm not bad, I'm sick. I'm not a bad guy who needs to get uh, uh, good. I'm a sick guy who needs to get well. I'm sick from a disease called alcoholism, a disease that centers in my mind, a talking disease. It tells me all about you, and it tells me all about me. It tells me all about God. It tells me it's constantly talking to me, telling me a bunch of crap. 
because my mind is just going. My mind is going, and 98% of what's going on in my mind is a bunch of crap. Because 98% of what's going on in my mind is just the same tapes going over and over and over and over again. My wife likes to call it, I got my hamster in the cage going round and round. That hamster will drive you nuts. Because what's it? What's that squirrel cage or what's that constant committee or whatever that's going on and on in your head all the time talking about? It's talking about you. It's talking about you in the past and it's talking about you in the future. And, and you're losing out in what's really going on right now. You see, if I don't treat my alcoholism now, when am I going to treat it? I have this alcoholism now. So why wouldn't I treat it now? The treatment I gave my alcoholism yesterday is yesterday's uh, treatment. It's not today's treatment. Yesterday's booze is not getting me drunk today. And yesterday's sobriety is not keeping me sober today. It's what I do today that's keeping me sober today. So I learned that this is a spiritual way of life that I have to learn to practice. And I have to take the, the, all nine steps in application in my life on a daily basis. I get up in the morning with untreated alcoholism. Sometimes, you know, my alcoholism is talking to me before I even open my eyes. You know, when you're in that, you're not quite awake yet, and your eyes are still closed, but your mind has woken up, and your mind is talking to you, and it's telling you all about everything you need to do. You need to do these things. You got to make these things happen. It's all up to you. You have to exert your will to have things your way. And that's what the book's talking about. That's, that's not the proper use of your will. That's your alcoholism talking to you. Telling you what you need to be happy. I got to have this and I got to have that boyfriend and I got to have that girlfriend. I got to have that car. I got to have that new place that I've been dreaming about. I got to have those new toys, you know. I've got to go to work. I've got to make money. I've got to make all these things happen. I got to make them happen because I'm not going to be happy if I don't make them happen. And your mind is driving you crazy with obsession because that's what it really is. It's just obsession. That obsession is an addiction. I become addicted to a way of thinking that's a fantasy. And I'm living in this fantasy. I'm not living in reality. I'm living in this fantasy that I think that if I can just arrange like the book talks about way back in the, in the uh, first step, third step, if I can just arrange all the players, if I can be the director, if I can just get everybody to do what I want them to do, it's a dependency. I'm dependent upon that. 
We talk about codependency and we think, oh, well, uh, that's something else. That's not this. No, that is this. This book talks about that. You don't place your dependency in any person, place, or thing. Hell, I'm going to tell you right now, don't put your dependency in me. Because I'll fail you. If you expect me to do the right thing, that's just a premeditated resentment. That's all it is. That's all any expectation of somebody else is. If you expect people to fulfill you, for you to, to bring you happiness, that is an expectation of them, and to have an expectation of them is nothing but a premeditated. You're setting yourself up for resentment. If you think your husband's going to make you happy, if, you're, if your wife's going to make you happy, if your kids are going to make you happy, if your boss is going to make you happy, if getting a pocket full of money is going to make you happy, if getting the next thing you see on the Internet is going to make you happy, you sit around and play with your phone all day, you think that makes you happy? It don't make you happy. All it does is occupy your mind with more addiction and obsession because you got false dependencies. Your dependency is upon the material world. And those who depend upon the material world are always going to fail. And if you depend upon the material world, you're going to drink again. It might not be right away. It might take five years. Ten years. I know a man in Prescott, it took him 34 years. But he drank again. And within 10 days, he was in the hospital dying. 34 years. Because he didn't have any spirituality. All he did was take up a seat in rooms of AA and talk trash. And these meetings are necessary, but they won't get you sober. These meetings don't get you sober. It's the work we do. The spiritual life is not a theory. I, there are things that I need to do on a daily basis. The tenth step is one of those things. Doing this tenth step. I ask myself, and the 10th step is not hard to do. It's just like everything else. We want to make a big deal out of it. Oh, it's so hard. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit down and write. I got tired of writing. I wrote all that stuff in the fourth step. Well, the fourth step was a moral inventory. This is not a moral inventory. It's a personal inventory. And it's only as hard as we want to make it. If we make it hard, we're not going to do it. I learned that from my sponsor, who taught me to ask myself three questions. That's all. Just ask myself three questions every day. I need to ask myself, what did I do today that I felt bad about? Because I can't keep doing the same thing day in and day out and feeling bad about it. If I'm going to keep doing the same thing day in and day out and feeling bad about it, I'm going to end up drunk. I can't live with that.
sober. You see, I love this old saying. That, well, it's not an old saying, really. It, I just started hearing it several years ago. And I've been around a long time. But you can't stay clean and live dirty. If you think you can you can stay clean and sober and live dirty, try it sometime. See how long you last before your conscience drives you crazy. Why did I drink? I couldn't stand my conscience. My sponsor, he's he he he's he loves to say, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is you get your conscience back. The bad news is you get your conscience back. And that's why I drank. Because I did terrible things in the pursuit of my addiction and alcoholism. I gave up everything. I gave up my dignity. I gave up everything I owned. And I couldn't stand to think about myself. And if I'm sober, I'm thinking about me. And so I had to kill that thinking with drugs and alcohol. I had to kill it. Then I'd be okay. So I can't live that way. I can't live that way sober. I can't keep doing things day in and day out and feeling bad about it. That's not going to work for me. I need to stop doing it. I, I need to ask myself, why am I doing that? You know? Like, I don't know if I told you this story. I was telling somebody that, I was telling somebody this story recently. I think I was in my men's group the other night. And I was talking about defects of character, you know, and addressing my defects of my character, my shortcomings. You know, I was, I'm, I get, I have a bad temper. I've always had a bad temper. You know, I didn't play well with, with other children. You know, if you said something to me, I'd beat you up. Or I'd beat, beat you with something. I'd do something to you, you know. I didn't, I had a bad temper. If you hurt me, I'd go insane. And I, and I, I hurt a lot of people in my life because of that. And and so I was always full of a lot of justifiable anger. See? And that, I mean, there's a good reason why we call it justifiable anger. Because we think it's justifiable. <laughs> we think it's okay. Because you stepped on my toes. So I'm going to make sure you never do that again. You're not gonna. You're not gonna step on my toes. You're not gonna offend me. I'm gonna make sure that you're dealt with. You don't know who I am. You don't know who you're messing with. I'm gonna fix you. I'm gonna see to it that you're gonna be punished. And and I said, who who am I? See, I'm I'm God. Don't you get it? I've set myself up to be God. So you're in my way. I'm try- Don't you know that I'm trying to get to this appointment? 
And I'm going to tell you something. I was several years sober when I'm telling you about this situation. And I was in a hurry. And, and, and it was my own fault because I didn't leave early enough. And then I'm, I'm on the road and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm going like a bat out of hell, you know. And I get up behind this car that's moving slowly and, and I can't pass. And, and I'm blowing the horn and I'm zooming up on them real aggressive because that's what I am. I'm aggressive, you know, in case you haven't figured that out yet. And I'm getting up on them, man, and I'm, I'm almost hitting them in the bumper, you know. Don't they know that I'm in a hurry? They need to get out of my way. I'm, I'm important. <laughs> I have to get to this meeting. They're depending on me. And I'm just raising hell and cussing and blasting the horn. And finally, I get a chance to go around them. And I go around them. And as I'm going around them, I turn and I look. And about 90-some-year-old old man and old lady. And I've just scared the living hell out of them. They're terrified looking at me, the look on their faces. And I said to myself, you're such an asshole. What is wrong with you? What is the matter with you? A sober man, sober all these years, and acting like that. King Baby, they call me. I'll show you the picture of me with a crown on. I told the men in my home group for years the story about me being King Baby. You know, that's, that comes from Carl Jung, you know. King Baby and Dr. Tebow and the ego and alcoholism. And here I am, you know. I remember I was two years sober and, and a man gave me a, a, a ball cap. You could, it was all wrapped up, but you could tell it was a ball cap. And he says, here's a present for your second anniversary. And... I'm, as I'm starting to tear it open, oh, I said, oh, it's a ball cap. He says, yeah, I suggest you wear it. And as I rip the paper open, I see the front of it, and written across the front, it says, a legend in my own mind. <laughs> he says, I suggest you start wearing that. So when I retired and went to Arizona from here, uh, five, almost five years now in July, my guys in my home group, Boca Men's Recovery, has been my home group 27 years. They, they kind of gave me a little going-away party. And unbeknownst to me, they had taken a picture of my face and had made a T-shirt with my face on it. And they presented me with a Burger King crown and this T-shirt that said, still a legend in my own mind, you know, with my picture on the front. Yeah. You know, uh, God has a great sense of humor. I mean, who, who has a better sense of humor than God? God takes me, a man who's a maniac, and uh, in 1989, after five years, after five years of sobriety, he puts me in charge of a, of a laborers union, the laborers union, construction laborers. And now I have to, now, now I have to fight. That's what you do. You fight for your members. 
You have to enforce the agreement that you have with the employers. You're the guy that takes up the grievances. I had all the rinker. I had 57 plants in the state of Florida. Rinker plants, Semex now. Plus, I had a whole lot of construction, too. And God has a great sense of humor. He, from that alone, I had to learn how to take care of things that used to anger me to the point of wanting to beat somebody with a baseball bat to resolve it, to learn how to resolve situations in a correct way, the way like Perry Mason would, okay? (laughs) Cool, calm, and collective. And for many years... Uh, and, and don't let anybody, you know, the guys in my home group will tell you, you know, because a lot of people think, well, Tom, he's an angry guy, you know. He's very angry, and they'll explain to him. It's not that he's angry. He's enthusiastic, okay? He's very enthusiastic about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, and I am. I don't, I'm tired of seeing people die. I have been stepping over bodies for years. And I'm just trying to carry a message that if you're like me, you have to find a spiritual way of life. Because if you won't find a spiritual way of life, you're, you're, you're just going to be miserable. You can't, you can't stay sober and be miserable. And if you don't want to be miserable, you have to learn that you have to come to a place where you no longer have those feelings anymore. And that only comes through practice. And it comes to a belief in a power that is going to restore you to sanity. If you'll just make a decision to turn your life and your will over to the care of that power. That I don't know what I need to be happy. I only know what I want. I'm only capable of knowing what I want. I'm human. I'm only capable of knowing what I want. Only God is capable of knowing what I need. I'm not God. I'm not God. And I quit playing God. I can't play God anymore. But I had to learn to fight without being angry. And people, a lot of times, people in Alcoholics Anonymous would give me a lot of hassle about being angry. They'd say, how can you be so angry? And I shamed myself like I was bad because I had this issue, you know, with how enthusiastic I am over stuff. And a lady one night after the meeting, because somebody had cross-talked and said something about the way I was sharing. And if you saw me five, six years ago, I was probably a lot louder in those days. I'm, now, I'm getting old now. And I'm, and I'm a lot calmer. And, you know, well, old age and retirement helps, you know, with the stress level. It does. And the lady came out and she said, Tom, I'm going to tell you something. Anger is an allowable emotion. 
Don't ever let anybody tell you you can't be angry. Angry and anger is an allowable emotion. You're allowed to be angry. But what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that anger? That's what's important. What am I going to do about these things? I like, uh, I read something in step 10 in uh, Father Keating's book, Divine Therapy and Addiction. And he talks about anger, and he's being interviewed by an AA or this AA or his TS. TS says, Bill Wilson wrote about justifiable anger. He said that it can lead to what he called emotional dry benders and then alcohol. Father, would you comment on the passion of anger versus the energy of anger? There is something good about anger, as I understand it, but it is the passion of anger that gets us in trouble. Father Keating says, we must not suppress the energy of anger because it is basically the power in us that enables us to pursue the difficult good or persevere in tough situations. Anger is not designed to hit people over the head. It is not designed for revenge. These are the more primitive aspects of it. The passion. One can have anger without experiencing the passion of anger. One can have anger and deliberately stir up angry feelings in order to accomplish some good. Jesus evidently did when he threw the money changers out of the temple. He must have been furious. Not just in an abstract sense. He scared them to death. They couldn't get out of there fast enough. It is sometimes appropriate to show anger, but the difference between passion and the energy of anger is that once the situation is ended, the passion continues and we find ourselves in a mood of anger. But the energy of anger stops when its purpose has been completed. So it leaves you ready for the next event with its proper emotional response, which might not be anger, but something else, such as joy or love or something like that. It is a dom domination by the emotion of anger that is harmful, not the energy itself. That is a difficult distinction for people who are somewhat angry by temperament or by habit to recognize. I don't recommend presuming that one can exercise just anger too soon in the spiritual journey. <laughs> because usually there turns out to be mixed motivation. Yes, we had a good intention, but we also had a strong wish wish a strong wish to straighten this guy out or to get even or to put him in his place. All those attitudes are not the movement of the spirit, but of the false self seeking compensation. Now, I can understand that. And I can also understand that you better be careful because the road to hell is paved with good intentions.
All of us are full of good intentions. I intended to do this. I intended, oh, I intended to, to make my 10th step today. I intended to do that. But you don't, I'm busy. I got all kinds of other things going on. I'm worn out. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I just want to watch television and hit the sack. I haven't got time to do that. If you think that you're going to sit down and have to write five pages like you're doing your four-step again, yeah, you're going to think that. All I'm saying is, is answer three questions. What did I do that I felt bad about today? Did I rise above my feelings today? I just gave you an example of that. Did I rise above that anger? Did I get angry and deal with it and then let it go? Did I let it go? Then I rose above it. Did I practice self-restraint? I used to have a sponsor who used to say, you know what, you're never going to be sorry for something you didn't say. So keep your mouth shut. Restrain yourself a pen and tongue. Oh, how fast you can get on there. How Man, my two sons, you know, I text like this. But I got a 31-year-old and a 24-year-old, or 26 now, and they text like this. Boy, so I know you young people can really text up a storm. I've watched to do it. Now, you can jump on there real fast. Just tell somebody off real quick. And then what? Feel all ashamed when you find out that it was you were wrong. Or you wish you hadn't have said that. Practice self-restraint. Pause. Pause. That's rising above your feelings. Don't just go with your feeling. Just because you feel it, that doesn't mean that you have to do it. I know a lot of people who used to, you know, they, and I did myself. I would get drunk just because I thought I had to. Just because I thought of it, I thought I had to do it. Just because I think of a shortcoming, that doesn't mean I have to do it. You know, I'm... Terrible gluttonous guy, you know. Let me tell you, my boys, when they were little, they'd go to bed and they'd say, Dad, please, don't eat all the ice cream while we're sleeping. <laughs> because I'll take that half gallon of ice cream. I, my wife would always say, why don't you get a bowl? Why, don't you, why, why should I get a bowl? I got the box. I don't, have to, I don't have to dirty the bowl. I just eat it right out of the box, you know. And then you go, Jesus, where'd all that ice cream go? Because so I could eat, I could eat a, half of that half a gallon in one sitting, no problem. No problem. That's all rising above your feelings is. It's about pausing, about taking the time, you know, to think things out instead of just reacting, you know. Learn to take action instead of reacting to everything. And I can take the action of self-restraint and pause 
and rise above my feelings. I don't have to always react to them right away. I was terrible my whole life the way I reacted, especially to anger. You know, somebody would look at me funny and I'd poke them in the nose. Today, I love the life that I live. I get along with the world. I have no resentments. Nothing bothers me. I don't hold on to anything. Why would I want to? Once you start to get a taste of this way of life and to have this peace, that's all I ever wanted. All I ever wanted was peace of mind. My mind used to drive me crazy when I was a kid. I was always restless, irritable, and discontent. I never could put my finger on it. I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I knew that something was wrong. Something just wasn't right with me. And then I found a bottle of wine in the woods, 13 years old, and got drunk and felt good. And I kept chasing that. Kept chasing it, trying to get it to work for me. But it turned on me. Destroyed my life. And I had to find a new way to achieve peace of mind. That's what the program in this spiritual way of life is all about. Why would I stay here and be here and do this, you know, for 38 years if I didn't get results from it? The results are there. If you put the work in, the results are there. They won't fail you. I promise you. If you find this way of life, this spiritual way of life, and you do simple things, they're not, they're not hard to do. This 10 step isn't some big deal. The third question I'm going to ask myself is, what am I going to do today that I am going to enjoy, but I wasn't a part in creating? Because I need to learn to look outside of myself, that everything is not about me. It's not all about me. You know, I, I never... I never really saw the world. All I ever saw was the bottom of a glass. That's what I was always looking at, the bottom of a glass. That's where my world was, in that bottle or in that drug. And, and the way that I saw life, it was, it was no good. And people were no good. And everything was no good in my life. And I went around, you know, like, a, like some kind of beast. Crawling around on the, on the earth, hating everything and hating everybody and hating God. I was full of nothing but hate. This life brought me to a life of nothing but love. And I love to, to I'll walk in the mountains and I, I look at the birds and the trees and the rocks, and I just, you know, am in love with that. I'm in love with life and with God's world. It's a beautiful place. 
And people are beautiful. I don't see the bad in people anymore. I only see the good in them. I look for the good in them. That's why I like to look in people's eyes. Because their eyes are the window to their souls. And I know that God's in there. Even in the people that are lost. God's still in there. God hasn't left. God's in every one of us. That's why God works through us. And God talks to me through the mouths of the other people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that he uses me to talk to you. Because it's not me. I get up here and I don't even know what I'm going to say. I just start talking. I ask God to help me like I was taught a long time ago. Just to turn, turn it over to him. And if he's going to use me as his instrument, then let the words be his, not mine. I, I, got, a, I got an idea of what I'm going to talk about. The emphasis on inventory is heavy only because a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. Once this healthy practice has become grooved, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. For these minutes and sometimes hours spent in self-examination are bound to make all the other hours of our day better and happier. Isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what I want? Don't I want to live a life that gives me peace of mind, that puts me right with the world, that right-sizes me? Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to live that way? Here's the problem. <laughs> you know, I, a long time ago, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, we were taught to be hard on ourselves and tolerant of others. Now, that doesn't mean that you're to beat yourself up. And it seems like that comment has gone away. It used to be a real prevalent part of Alcoholics Anonymous to be hard on yourself. Maybe too much therapy and too much psychiatry, you know, told people you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't talk about being hard on yourself. Because being hard on yourself doesn't mean feeling sorry for yourself and beating yourself up. What it means is that you're to practice self-discipline. You're to discipline yourself. So that we're hard on ourselves and tolerant of others. And my sponsor said to me, you know, you need to learn to be more tolerant. And I said, I don't even know what that word means. And he said, well, tolerance is a form of charity. And you're not a very charitable person. And I wasn't. 
I had no tolerance for anybody. If you didn't look like me and act like me and come from where I came from and, and believed all the things that I believed, I had no tolerance for you. I only, I only barely tolerated the ones that were just exactly like me <laughs> until they pissed me off. And then I had no tolerance for them. Father John Doe, I love, he says, and I love this. Tolerance is the minimum of love. The minimum. It's just the minimum of love that you can give to another human being. To show them some tolerance. That's just the minimum of it. I love the line in the book that says, you know, we alcoholics are undisciplined. We're undisciplined. So we allow God to discipline us. And he has. He's disciplined me plenty. Showed me the error of my ways. Showed me through inventory. Most of us must admit that we have loved but a few, that we have been quite indifferent to the many, so long as none of them gave us trouble. And as for the remainder... Well, we really disliked or hated them. Man, that line sure fit me when I got here. That line sure fit me when I got here. But this, I love this line in, on page 93 in step 10. It says, someone who knew what he was talking about once remarked that pain was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. How heartily we AAs can agree with him. For we know that the pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and emotional turmoil before serenity. Now, what's that mean? Uh, what do you think that means? I would have never got sober if it hadn't been for the pain of my alcoholism. So that pain was a gift. And you know what? I, my character would have never changed in Alcoholics Anonymous if it wasn't for the pain of my assholeism. <laughs> because not only do I suffer from alcoholism, but I suffer from assholeism too. We don't like to think that about ourselves. No. We like to think that we're just nice people who if everybody would treat us nice, we wouldn't be such an asshole that it's their fault. It's the, I guess it was those old people's fault that just wouldn't get out of my way. You know, don't they know who the hell I am? That I'm important and I got things to do to accomplish. No. It's only through emotional turmoil, through the pain that I've been through in my sobriety that has brought me serenity. Pain is the touchstone. And you want to hear something that's really funny? You know who that guy is that Bill was talking about? He says, someone who knew what he was talking about? That guy's name was St. Francis. That's where he got that from. We'll talk about him next week. Thanks for letting me share.
Okay, let's thank Tom one more time. Okay, it's time for the secretary report. Mark's going to come up and do that. Please welcome him. Hey, everyone. My name is Mark. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going to go around. While that's going on, I've asked Alan to come up here and read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering, what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. So here's Alan. My name's Alan. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thanks, Alan. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the Ford of the Second Edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses and among the remainder. Those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics in the room tonight? Okay. More important, does anyone in the room need a sponsor? Someone to take them through all 12 steps. Nobody, huh? Bummer. But if you do, um, get with someone who raised their hand. <laughs> Please join us Monday nights right here on this stage where the big book comes alive. It's a big book study meeting. Fellowship starts at 6.30. The workshop starts at 7.15. If anyone's interested, we also have CDs, mugs, large print big books, Little Red Books and Big Book Dictionaries for Sale. See me or another home group member if you're interested. We meet here every Thursday. Ryan, are we meeting up here next week or downstairs? Are we back? Okay. So we're going to be back downstairs in the normal room next week, which is good because we have a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, we will be here next Thursday. Tom will be on session 11. We're looking forward to that. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin to sound of the bells. See you all next week. Just as a reminder, we have tonight's session and all the past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Again, I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study in this room. And those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, um, please line up down to center all once we are done. And as a reminder, um, when you leave, please wait to your 75 feet away from the doors to smoke or vape. Um, so let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. 
Our Father, It doesn't matter. 
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Each way flowers blooming all the time. 
song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Yeah. 